this morning, we're going to pick back up with the themes, the seven themes of the book of Revelation. So this is part two for those of you who have always wanted a fire and brimstone message here at Whitestone, sort of, or literally. Last week, we started off by mentioning a few of the big reasons why the book of Revelation is hardly ever touched or hardly ever read um, by even believers, why we don't touch or read it. It's, we say too controversial, uh, it's too confusing, uh, it's not relevant, you know, why bother? But again, those aren't very good reasons to avoid an entire book of the Bible, a book that really is actually the last, I mean, it's the last thing that God says to us uh, before the Bible is closed. And it's a book that's written specifically and directly to us, the church. And it's a book that informs us of the future. It comforts us um, in our suffering and it motivates us to live for Christ. So we started by looking at the first three major themes last week. Starting in chapter one, the first focus is Jesus. And Jesus is described as powerful, interceding for us, uh, infinitely wise, a righteous judge, watching all, over all the churches, and giving authority to his messengers on earth. Then in chapters two and three, the focus turns to the church and how Jesus knows every church very intimately. He knows that, you know, the churches who will, whose love is fading, who are persecuted, who allow false teaching or immorality, those that are essentially dead, those that are truly faithful, and even those that are hypocritical or lukewarm. And then in chapters four and five, the scene then shifts to heaven and the focus is God's throne there in heaven, where God himself, he is the focus. And we all, and the saints all, are in awe. And Jesus Christ stands alone as worthy in all of the universe. So that's the first uh, three, and today we're going to look at the other four themes from the book of Revelation. And if you haven't figured out yet, we have to cover a lot today, because <laughs> there's 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, and so far we've only looked at five of them. So clearly I'm not very good at math. But the idea was, you know, take the intro and the first three themes last week, and then the the last four themes this week. So four and four, it sounds even when you look at it like that. It's just not. But let me give you a quick heads up as we start today. And that is that it's going to get pretty bad before it gets good. I mean, there is some ex very intense stuff in the book of Revelation. Unrelenting evil, catastrophic punishment on the earth. But hold on. Hold on, because for those who follow Christ, it gets very, very good. Much better than you have even imagined. Better than you think. So we'll pick up with theme number four. And the fourth theme that you notice in the book of Revelation is God's judgment on all the wickedness on earth. Do you remember last week when in chapter five, Jesus you know, came forward and took the scroll that was in the Father's hand. That scroll 
Well, in those days in the first century, scrolls were often used as, you know, what, what they used for title deeds, for land. In fact, you can read about a story about, a, a very cool story about title deed in Jeremiah chapter 32, where Jeremiah purchases land at a time where it made no sense to buy land. Uh, to put it lightly, it, it wasn't a seller's market. And so this scroll that Jesus takes from the Father, likely it represents a title deed for this earth, which makes sense because only Jesus is worthy to inherit the earth or to bring judgment on the earth. So that makes sense. So starting in chapter 6, when Jesus takes this scroll, you see that it is sealed shut with seven seals. It has seven seals on it. And each time that Jesus breaks another seal in order to open it, another punishment is brought down on this earth. And these seals, they start in chapter 6, but they continue in chapters 8 to 10, and then also in chapters 15 and 16. But there's a twist. Something unexpected happens when the seventh seal is broken and opened. Because at that point, when the seventh seal is broken, seven more judgments emerge that are called trumpets. And then when the seventh trumpet is blown, seven more judgments emerge that are called bowls. So in a way, it's kind of like you know, a Russian nesting doll. Or in some ways, it's kind of like that gift from your family or friend who... You know, I've, I don't know if you've ever gotten them where they think they're hilarious and they wrap this gift and you open it and there's another gift inside it. You open it, another gift, inside another gift, inside it. So, and I always think that's funny. It's kind of funny because no matter how much work the person goes through in order to open that gift, it's always a lot more work for the person who wraps it. <laughs> so I don't, in the end, I don't know who the joke is on. But it, so it's sort of like that in a way, except of course each box would be a worldwide catastrophic plague that destroys the earth and its people. So what exactly are these judgments, these seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls? Well, it starts off with war, famine, disease, and death. And then you have hail and fire and these meteors and comets falling to the earth. One third of the earth will be burned up. One third of the ocean will turn to blood. One third of the rivers will become bitter and poisonous. And one third of the sun, the moon, and the stars, its light will be darkened. There will be this horde of locusts that sting like scorpions. And there will be 200 million demons that kill one-third of the earth's people. And then it gets bad. People get painful sores. All the, all the oceans turn to blood. All the rivers turn to blood. The sun scorches people. There's complete darkness. And then massive hailstones fall, each weighing about 100 pounds. I mean, this will be a time of great suffering here on this earth. But remember, this is a time when the wickedness and the evil will be the worst in all of human history, by far. 
Not only that, I mean, just setting that aside, leading up to this point, there has already been thousands and thousands of years of history of people blaspheming God, rebelling against him, rejecting him, cursing him, essentially spitting on him. Billions and billions of people throughout history, billions of people even today who hate God, who hate his people, who hate everything about Christ, who would love to crucify Jesus again if they could, and who have rejected him a hundred times. So the real amazing thing when you think about it truly is not the severity of the judgment in the future, but much more so the incredible patience of God right now. I mean, we look at the world today and it feels like judgment is already long overdue. I mean, think about it. We look at what's happening in this world, all the, the evil all the incredible injustice, the cruelty in this world, and we want God to step in right now. Make things right, God. Please, set things straight. Why is God waiting still? It says why. It says he's waiting for more people to repent, for more people to turn to him and be rescued. In 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, it says, God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then in 2 Peter 3.9, it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So think about that. Despite the number of wicked people, despite the years of wickedness, on this earth, despite the depths of evil that people engage in, God continues to be patient and he continues to offer his forgiveness. I mean, compare that with us. And a lot of times we're not patient at all. Even when we are just slightly offended, we make sure that person knows about it. Can't let them get off scot-free. I mean, it's easy to do. I know that I, I, I don't overlook minor offenses anywhere near as much as I should. It's easy for me to you know, justify it and think, well, you know, I just want to make sure the things are clear and out in the open. You know, you don't want to hide the truth. I can share what's on my mind. You know, that wouldn't be good to hide truth. Just sharing my thoughts, just promoting good communication with my wife, that's all. That's noble, right? But really all it is, is just me not willing to overlook offenses. Thankfully, God gave me a wife that is patient with me and who is trusting God that eventually I'll grow up. But God is extremely patient. Eventually, yes, judgment will come. If God is gonna pour out all of his wrath on his perfect son, on the cross, then he will certainly punish sinners. But for now, he continues to wait for more to turn to him, for more to be rescued. Number five, another thing that the book of Revelation really focuses on is how faithful God is to his people, to the nation of Israel, and also 
to the saints, to his followers. And this is a theme that you see very clearly in chapters 7, 11, and 12, and 14. Now, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. And no matter how many times that they rebelled, God continued to confirm his relationship and his covenant with them. Uh, And that was a lot. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is turning away from God again and again. But God is faithful and he keeps confirming his covenant to them. He kept telling them that nothing has changed. He still has a plan for them. A plan to establish them back in their land that he gave them. To give them a new heart. To set them above the other nations of the earth. And to set up a king from the line of David that will rule the earth from Jerusalem. And you can see God keeping this promise in places like chapters 7 and 14, where 144,000 people from the nation of Israel are sealed to be God's witnesses here on this earth. 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. God is giving them a new heart. He's giving them a new heart to follow them and to him and to represent him. And that's just the beginning Because at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the seven years, all of the nation of Israel will be saved. Together as a nation, they'll be given a new heart and they will finally acknowledge that it is Jesus, Yeshua, who is their Messiah. They will accept him. And it talks about this in Zechariah 12, 10, where it describes Israel's reaction Whenever Jesus returns, it says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of, inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. They will weep because they realize they rejected one of their own. They killed their own Messiah. But it says at that point, when Jesus returns at the end of this, the battle of Armageddon, at the close of the tribulation, it says all the nation of Israel together, they will plea for God's mercy and they will be granted it. And in Romans eleven twenty five and 26, it says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles Come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So God is faithful to Israel. And then you see the same thing in Revelation chapter 11. You see another uh, picture of God setting apart the nation of Israel. Because in Revelation 11, John is told to measure out the temple there in Jerusalem. This is a symbol, it's a picture of God taking possession of the nation of Israel as his own special people. He's claiming him as his possession because the temple represented uh, Israel in their relationship with God. And that's why John is told to not bother with the outside courts because that's what belonged to the other nations. God has a specific and special plan with the nation of Israel. And then again, in Revelation 12, we see another picture of God's faithfulness to Israel. You remember last week I mentioned something about a woman clothed with the sun? Well, that's Israel clothed with God's glory. And no matter how many times Satan tries to destroy the nation of Israel at this period in the tribulation, 
God won't allow it. Twice it says in chapter 12 that God prepares a place in the wilderness for the nation of Israel and he protects them during this time period. They are taken care of. So Israel is sealed, they are protected, they are saved, and they will be exalted as God promised. But you also read about God's faithfulness to his saints, to his followers, to the Gentile believers during this time period as well. Because even though likely there are only unbelievers on the earth at the start of this time period, because the church is taken, but through the course of this time, many people turn to God. They repent and they start following God during this time. And God welcomes them into his presence. Look at what it says in Revelation 7, 19, uh, sorry, Revelation 9, 7, 9, 13, and 14. And this is a scene in heaven in Revelation 7. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So God is faithful to forgive. He welcomes anyone at all who repents and turns to him, even the wicked during the tribulation, even at that point. And this is actually similar to something that we find in our own lives as well, in our own individual lives, something that happens. Because a lot of the times we only see how things aren't going according to plan. We only see the destruction. We only see the pain. We only see the tribulation in our life. And a lot of times, I mean, the truth is there's so much of God's faithfulness at those times that we often overlook and we miss out on. God is working behind the scenes in ways that we don't know about. We don't see it, but he is working for us in our tribulation just as much as at other times and probably more so. Look at what it says in Philippians 1, 6. It says, and a lot of you are familiar with this verse, it says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God transformed your heart when he saved you, when, when he made you a new person. That's the work that he started in you when he made you his child and he gave you his spirit. He is making you a new person and he continues this work of making you a new person, of molding your character. That's the work that he promises to finish until you become just like Jesus Christ. And it's these trials, it's these hard times, it's these tribulations that mold our character the most. Look what it says in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the trials, it's, it's actually God being faithful to us. 
though we might miss it. God promised, and he will continue his work in us to make us like Christ. Number six, another major thing that you come across in the book of Revelation you can't miss is the amount of evil in the world. Not just the judgment, but the reasons for the judgment. The evil, the unimaginable evil. There will be evil people, evil spirits, an evil kingdom, the evil one himself, Satan. In chapter 12, it says that Satan, the dragon, he's referred to as the dragon, and his demons, they lose a war against God's angels in the heavens and are thrown down to the earth. Satan then pursues the nation of Israel to torment them. But of course, we already talked about how God protects them during this time. And so Satan then turns his attention to pursue the saints on the earth at that time. All the saints. Then in chapter 13, it talks about how the Antichrist, who's referred to as the beast, he will be this great political leader. He'll have great power, but he will be indwelt by a demonic spirit. He will blaspheme God. He will kill the saints, and he will demand that the world worships him as God. And he has a helper, the false prophet, who will deceive the world with sorcery and tell the world to worship the Antichrist. And people will be forced to get a mark in order to follow the Antichrist and to just survive at that time. In chapters 17 and 18, it talks about an evil woman who is called the great prostitute and an evil city, which is called Babylon. But really, they're both just the same. They represent false religion. Remember, if the bride or if the church is the bride of Christ, false religion is nothing but a prostitute. And this false religion, it says, is centered in the city of Babylon, and it becomes extremely wealthy, certainly by corruption and by war. And it says that this city is located in a desert region. So it very well could be ancient Babylon, which, of course, is in present-day Iraq. But in the end, it says God will destroy this entire city and all of its wealth in a single hour. It'll all go up in flames. So you've got evil people, Satan himself roaming the earth, the evil Antichrist, a false prophet, an evil political kingdom, demons, an evil religion, and an evil city. I mean, the presence of evil will be everywhere. But here's the thought. Here's something maybe to consider as you take in how much evil will, will exist at that time. It's easy for us to read about all this evil in the book of Revelation and think that it's only something that's in the future. And we forget about the fact that all of this evil is technically what we're up against right now. Nothing new comes into existence at that time. I mean, this evil exists right now. It just becomes more visible and more tangible to the people living on the earth at that time. Right now, though, every day we are in a battle against Satan, against his demons, his followers, his lies. The only difference is we don't see it the way it's depicted here. And so when we read about all this evil and the, what it looks like in Revelation, it should, in a way, make, you know, wake us up and make us realize, wow, this is what it looks like. 
This is what we're up against every day. This is its ugly face. Evil is very real. In Ephesians 6, 12, it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's now real. So what's the answer? Knowing that this evil is all around us, what should we do? Well, you just have to keep reading that passage in Ephesians 6 because it tells you exactly what to do. It says, therefore, in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And it then lists this armor of God. For defense, you have a belt, a breastplate, a shield, and a helmet. Truth, righteousness, faith, salvation. If you know the truth, if you live righteous, if you have strong faith and you're secure in your salvation, you are very well protected. And then for offense, you have shoes and a sword, the gospel, God's word, praying in the spirit. If you're ready to share the gospel at any time, if you can back up your beliefs with scripture and you're at all time constantly praying and asking the spirit to lead you, then you for sure will point many people to Christ. That's victory for you. That's rewards in heaven. So as you read all of this, about all this evil in the book of Revelation, just remember that this evil is real. Even right now, it exists now. It's just unseen. So protect yourself from it and take up weapons to fight it. And then the final theme, number seven, that you come across in the book of Revelation is the victory of Jesus Christ and the victory of all the saints who follow him. And this is the best part. In chapter 19, it talks about how we are joined with Christ forever and we celebrate at an event called the marriage supper of the lamb. After that celebration, we come down with Jesus and we watch him as he utterly wipes out the antichrist and his kingdom and army and sets up his kingdom, Jesus's kingdom here on this earth. And in chapter 20, it tells us how Jesus will bind Satan and cast him into a bottomless pit for a thousand years and Jesus will reign as king on this earth for those thousand years and we will reign with him. And then at the end of those thousand years, Jesus will punish all unbelievers of all ages at the great white throne judgment. Evil will be punished, Jesus will set everything right. Then in chapter 21, God makes a brand new earth, burning up all the corruption on this earth. And then he brings down heaven. He brings down this massive heavenly city and places it here on this earth. And this heavenly city is called the New Jerusalem. And it's 14, about 1,400 miles wide, long, and high. And then in chapter 22, John describes God's throne and the river of life and testifies that everything he has said is true. Jesus is coming. Be ready. So just, just for a minute, if you want, close your eyes, but just take in all that is coming very soon. At some point, we are taken, at some point soon, we are taken to heaven and joined to Christ for all eternity, followed by a great celebration in heaven unlike anything you can imagine. It says we will be adorned in radiance and glory unlike any bride ever. 
Then we come down with Christ and watch him wipe out the Antichrist and all evil people on the earth and bind Satan and cast him into a bottomless pit. And then we rule with Christ where he is king of the entire earth for a thousand years. There will be righteousness and abundant life everywhere. Then after those thousand years, we watch Christ throw Satan, his demons, and all his followers into eternal punishment. We will never see evil again for all eternity. Then we watch as God makes everything new. The earth is made new and this heavenly city comes down, a place where we all have an inheritance. It has streets of gold, has walls and gates of precious jewels, It has a river of life coming from God's throne and a tree of life on either side. At this point, God will always be with us and we will always behold the face of Christ. He will be our light and we will need nothing else. This is your future. If you have faith in Christ, this is what you have to look forward to. In 1 John 5, 4, it says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This is our hope. This is what's coming soon. So be encouraged. In the meantime, be amazed at the incredible patience of God. Know that he is faithful even when you can't see it and be aware of all the evil around you and be ready to fight. Your king is coming soon. Let's pray. Almighty, infinite, all-powerful, holy God, How amazing when we just take a moment to reflect on what you have in store for us, what you have prepared for us, what is more certain for those who follow Christ than even the sun rising the new day. Lord, you have spoken this with your word. Your word is always true and we can take great encouragement and comfort and excitement in the fact that you will set things straight. Evil will be punished. And Lord, you will be faithful as you always have been to your people. You keep your promises. And Lord, you will show to us for all eternity the greatness of your love and kindness. And we will be in amazement and awe and appreciation. Lord, thank you that you have revealed these things to us. Thank you, Lord, for saving us, for being patient with us, that even though we wandered for so long, you were the one who called us and gave us a new heart. And even though we wander now, you accept us, you forgive, you restore us, to a right relationship with you. Lord, we thank you so much. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for coming. Have a wonderful day.